0: Today we deal with a sombering text that reminds us of the truth that is not a New Testament truth, although it is a New Testament truth, it's not just a New Testament truth, that on that day when people are divided between the uncondemned and the condemned, between the people that make it into heaven, so to speak, and those who don't, there will be three kinds of people. Two of them, there's no really any surprise at all. And one of them is really, really surprised that day. One group is not surprised because they don't follow God. They never followed God. They never claimed to follow God. They rejected God. They didn't care. They still won't care on that day. They'll hate God for it. They'll hate God for the condemnation. But they'll say, see, that's why we never followed you. You're terrible. We hate you. And they'll always hate him. But they're not surprised on that day to find out that they're part of the condemned group. And then you have the group of followers, believers. Uh, they've, they've heard the shepherd's voice. They followed the shepherd's voice. They know they're not perfect, but they know they're forgiven in Jesus Christ. And so they're not going, ooh, I hope I, I'm in. They, they know they're in, not because of their own virtue, but because they've been clinging to Christ by faith the entire time, see? So they're, they're not surprised because they understand what Christ has accomplished for them. So that makes sense. you got two groups so far. Neither of them are surprised. That middle group is part of the condemned group, but they're surprised they're condemned. And we see this throughout Scripture, like when Jesus taught his disciples, not everyone, will say, uh, not everyone on that day who says, Lord, Lord, are mine. I don't know them. But they have excuses, right? But, Lord, we, we served you, we prophesied, we did miracles, we cast out demons. It's kind of weird if you think about how powerful their ministries were. Uh, but they're, they're not in. Now, which one of those is the scariest category to you? I say that middle one. That's the trick. And it could be frustrating. It's, it's kind of like, and this is nowhere near as weighty, right? But it's kind of like if you've ever interviewed for a job and they whittle it down to three candidates, you're one of them. You know there's two other candidates. You don't know who they are. You don't really know where their resumes are. Or maybe you you have heard through the grapevine, you kind of know their resumes and their background, and you're feeling pretty good about yours. They don't have your experience. They don't quite have your education. And so you're feeling pretty good. And when you go to that final interview, you have a sense, you've researched the company, you have a sense what they're looking for, but you don't know exactly what they're looking for. And then when you find out, that they went with one of the other candidates. You're left wondering, what did I say, right? What did I say? Was it something I said? Did I wear the wrong thing to the interview? I cracked that joke. Was it just not funny? Did it offend the person? It doesn't make sense to you because your resume stacked and they went with someone else. On that day, that's how people are going to feel. I was at church. I did the churchy things. I was in ministry. I went to seminary. I was a pastor. I led a small group. I made sure at Christmas time we knew it wasn't about the gifts. My theology was correct. Why am I getting ushered into this line over here with the condemned people? Now, thankfully, we don't serve a God who leaves you in the dark as to what he's looking for. He's not interviewing you, and you're sitting there guessing. I hope I say the right thing. Scripture is replete, full, of helping us understand how to not be in that middle category. We know how to not be in that abject reject God category, but that tricky category of being real churchy, real Christiany, but still not in that's old testament stuff and we find that right here in 1 Samuel chapter 4 in this chapter we see ourselves in the israelites the israelites are not people who outright, outright reject god that's the philistines right those are the bad guys those people don't they don't serve the lord but they're supposed to be the people for whom the Lord is is on their side, and He goes ahead and He fights for them. These are the people that, that when they were up against the the Red Sea, God split the Red Sea. When they're up against the Jordan, God split the Jordan. When they're up against giants, God killed the giants. When they're up against Jericho, God broke the walls. God goes before His people. They're cold at night. He sends a pillar of fire, right? Then that and that cloud was their original GPS. <laughs> you know, where do we go? Just follow the cloud. That's it. Hungry, manna, sick of this low-protein, all-carb diet, quail. But Israel finds themselves, the Israel finds herself uh, abandoned by God in this chapter. Why is that? Why is there a middle group that's going to be surprised in the end? That's the same question as to why Israel got left hanging in this chapter. So when we find the answer in this chapter, we'll find the answer as to why people are going to find themselves in that middle group, and we'll find the answer as to how to not be in that group. Let's look at the top of it, just the first four verses. Israel suffers a terrible defeat with the Philistines. They presume they're going to win. They assume they're going to win. They win. They They lose terribly. And then they wrongly conclude why they lost, and they double down, and then they lose even worse after the halftime break. Uh, there's, the slaughter is worse in that second half. So let's take a look in the first four verses. Uh, starting at the second half of verse 1 of chapter 4, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Doesn't tell us why, but... but This is a common theme, right? They're fighting the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So we'll get to the second half and see how this plan doesn't work at all. But let's just unpack a few things here because I think it's really important. Um, The the Lord does not waste words. Everything is important. And there's a great irony in the fact that they are encamped at Ebenezer. Now, most of us, when we think of Ebenezer, we think of Ebenezer Scrooge. And when we think of Ebenezer Scrooge, we think greedy, uh, jerk, terrible person, that, that is a name of irony in that story. Ebenezer does not mean grumpy or scroogey. Actually, Ebenezer means uh, by the Lord's help I've gone this far or I've gotten to this place by the Lord's help. We'll see that later in chapter 7 when Samuel witnesses God rescuing Israel Samuel raises a stone and he names the stone Ebenezer and he says, till now the Lord has helped us. So it's ironic, right? They're encamped at a place called the Lord has helped us and the Lord's not helping them. And when they lose 4,000 people, they're like, why didn't the Lord, what happened to Ebenezer? We were encamped in the place named Ebenezer. What happened to Ebenezer? What happened to the Lord helping us? Now, I want you to notice that they know the Philistines didn't beat them. They give the reason why they lost. They say it right there, verse 3. Why did they lose? Why, they ask, has the Lord defeated us today? That's interesting. They understand, theologically, that the Philistines can't beat Israel. The only way that the Philistines can beat Israel is if God doesn't show up. And by God not showing up, God is actually the one that defeated us. Now, you might go, well, see, there's Israel with their whack theology. No, 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 I think it's Israel with correct theology, actually. I think the theology is correct. If you compare that with the rest of Scripture... If God breaks down the walls of Jericho, they beat Jericho. What if God doesn't break down the walls of Jericho? You're not taking that city, pal. They, they go to Canaan. There's giants in the land. Some people think the spies were lying. I don't think the spies were lying. I think they were scared, but they saw the giants as bigger than God. And so Joshua and Caleb were like, okay, giant shmaiats, are they bigger than God? They're not lying. They're, they're scared because they don't have faith. And so throughout scripture, you see the the understanding that if God goes before them, they win. If they lose, it's because he didn't go before them, period. And, And I think they understand that here. They're like, huh, Philistines, it wasn't because they were powerful. They didn't have better bows. It's not because their chariots were faster. Any of those things could be true, but no, that's not it. When they're in their debrief meeting in the tent, that's not it. The Lord defeated us. What in the world? So they understand that. And then they have all the right things in place. They have priests. The priests are there. This isn't a time where the priests are back praying and only soldiers go out. Priests fight. They have a temple. Hey, we have an ark. Let's bring the ark out here. Maybe we need better proximity. The ark among the enemies, now it's on. But they have priests, they have a temple, they have the right theology, they have an ark, they have the Torah. But they're defeated. And when they come to the conclusion that God isn't behind them, notice what they don't do. They go and get the ark, but they don't inquire of the Lord. They don't ask the Lord, hey, where were you? They could have asked Samuel. Samuel's back there, where's he? Ignored. They're still, run, they're still running with Eli as quarterback. star dude's still on the bench. Still, still you, at least ask Eli, though. They don't even do that. Hey, Eli, you know, uh, brought you a snack. <laughs> what, is your, uh, what is your conclusion here? Why wasn't the Lord there? No, they're just like, you know what? Let's grab the ark and bring the ark out here, and let's get it done with the ark. It's foolish. So rather than inquiring of the Lord to try to find out why is the Lord upset, or is the Lord upset, or why wasn't he there, instead they bring a representation of the Lord's presence. Now we read this, the ark, and if you're not familiar with scripture, you're like, Noah's ark? What's happening? That's kind of big to bring out in battle. They still had it? It's not Noah's ark. Ark is just, it's a box, okay? And it's probably something around the size of our baptistry tank that's behind the piano right now. Something around that size. It had the, the golden cherubim on top and it was the, the seat of God. It was God's presence, his glory dwelled on that. It, it represented his presence with Israel. So they're dragging God into the fight by bringing his footstool into it. If that makes sense. So what's going on here? A few things are going on here. Three observations real quick and we'll move into the rest of the verses. The first one, is they're troubleshooting the problem themselves instead of going to God rather than consulting the Torah. I mean, they could have thought like, huh, like remember when Joshua's defeated? Oh yeah, Aikinson, remember Aikinson? And then when they handled Aikinson, then God went for them again. Stories like that. No, we're not going to read the Torah. Let's just go get the Ark. Second, they're confusing things that represent God with the God that those things represent. Things that represent God are not God and they're making that confusion. God is not the ark and they presume that where the ark is, God is period. But as holy as a temple furnishing as the ark is, God's presence is not actually the ark, it's conditional. And on the third thing, it seems like the, the it's not just that they're confusing the ark as the representation with what it represents. The Ark with God, they're making that confusion for sure. But I think it seems that the Israelites are trying to force God's hand. If the Ark is in the middle of the battle, you're not going to get let us lose with the Ark right in front of all the Philistines, are you? I was, it was humorous. I was reading a, a, a wonderful little commentary um, by Ralph Davies. I think his name is. Uh, it, it's great. But he, he tells a story about when he was a kid and his older brother would try to pull a fast one on his dad. He would he had this habit of asking a girl out on a date, making all the arrangements, Yeah, I'll pick you up at this time, we'll go to this place and hang out. And then maybe an hour or two before the date, goes into dad's workshop or wherever dad is hanging out. Hey Dad, can I borrow the car? What's he doing? If the dad is like, I don't think you could borrow the car. I already made the date, dad. I already called her. She said yes. The parents are expecting me. You don't want us to look bad, do you? You ever do that to your parents? Set them up to make it harder for them to say no? Well, in that story, uh, (laughs) the author says his dad just, he heard him from the other room, and his dad just ripped him a new one, man. You you ask for the car, then you make the plans. I'm not going to go for those high pressure tactics. He told them. I, I think that might be what Israel's doing here. We're not going to start talking about who sinned. Is there sin in the camp? We're not going to go read a devotional and the Achan story back there in the Torah. Where listen, bring the ark out here, and he has to do it. He has to. If the ark is out there, he has. What's he going to do? Let the ark get captured? God wouldn't do that. And so they presume if we bring out the ark, God has to let us win. He has to. No, he does not. Why? Because God does not need our victory to secure his. He doesn't need your success for him to be successful. And that that runs against the grain of a lot of American strains of Christianity. Christianity. Of course God wants us to be successful. We're kingdom kids. We are image bearers of God. And if, we're gonna, if he's going to be successful, it's because we're going to be successful. He doesn't need our success for him to be successful. And that's a dangerous place to be. That's where they are. Now watch how this painful lesson plays out because we're going to learn from it. In verses 5 through 11, even though the Philistines, interestingly, they fear Israel's gods, they call it, they're actually emboldened to fight. And they decimate Israel terribly in 5 through 11. Let's check it out. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Imagine that. Israel is shouting so loudly, the ground is shaking. Verse 6, and when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Now, just pause there for a second. Isn't that interesting? They're reading the Torah. They're not reading it well. God's plural, plagues in the wilderness. No, it was plagues, then they went to the wilderness. Okay, they're Philistines, right? They don't read it every week. But they're reflecting on, okay, who are we dealing with here? This is scary. But just so you understand, when unbelievers... Don't want God. It doesn't matter how powerful God is, how awesome God is, they just don't want Him. They don't kneel. They don't start a worship service. They don't say, you know what, we'll follow that powerful God. Verse 9: Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Like God said they would, if you remember. Okay, pause there for, for a minute. You'll notice how the passage, the author, cues us in as to why God is not with them. They're presuming upon God's presence in their shouting. They're really, really, really excited. They're not excited that Hophni and Phinehas have repented. They're not excited that they finally stopped uh, using the temple for their own sexual escapades. They're not excited that Eli finally got off his seat, off his couch, out of his bed, and actually did something. They're excited because now we've got the ark here, and we get to, to pressure God into fighting for us their shouting is shaking the ground but God's presence isn't shaking the ground it's an energy that's drummed up by man and not by God what they need is God's presence and they think they have it but they do not the two sons of Eli these terrible workers in the temple are mentioned twice in this passage why because the author is cueing you in like look who's leading them you think God's going to go out there these terrible priests they don't have God They died as God said they would, and the ark is captured. Can God be captured? It's not God. If God's presence isn't there, you know what that is? It's a piece of furniture. It's a representation. The Philistines understand just enough about God to fear him, even though their facts are a little off in verse 8. But though they fear God, they don't fear him enough. It's not a holy fear. It's not a repentant kind of fear. If God really were with Israel... It'd be over for them, but no, they press in, and they think that God is like their gods, that they kind of work. You know what I mean? They kind of work. If you sacrifice to it enough, maybe, maybe it'll work. Maybe that God is upset with you today. How about another God? That's part of why you need a plurality. This one's upset. Well, go to that God then. Maybe that God. That God really wants to make that God embarrassed, so go to that God for this thing and then. And so they just assume Yahweh's kind of like that. Eh, He he works, but hey, we could still beat him though. Our gods don't always work. On this particular instance, they were right. Not because they were able to defeat God, but because God wasn't present there at all. And the craziest thing about this entire narrative is how surprised Eli is when he hears the news. And that's why I say people in this situation are shocked when they shouldn't be shocked. It shouldn't be a shocker that God is not present with this middle group. It's not a shocker that he's not present with the Philistines, but it's a shocker that he's supposed to be present with Israel, and he's not, and they suffer defeat. And then Eli's shocked by it. It's shocking that he's shocked. (laughs) So his fears are confirmed when he hears the report of the ark in these next few verses, and actually finding out about the ark leads to his own death in 12 to 18. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat, no surprise there, by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the men came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. That's there because the dude showed up with dirt on his head and his clothes torn, and Eli still asked, how did it go? He's not an idiot. He's blind. But he's more than just physically blind, right? He should know what the report's going to be. Verse 16, and the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Text tells us in verse 13 that Eli's heart was trembling because he already knew this was a dangerous game that Israel was playing, right? Why else would your heart be trembling? He has the sense like, hmm, the ark out there, uh, is that really a good idea? He's just foolish enough to go, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it'll work. Or he's scared of his sons and his sons are like, dad, we're taking the ark. Uh, Oh, okay, all right, sits back down. But his heart is trembling because he knows this is is a dangerous game Israel's playing. And you remember from the last chapter, none of God's words that God brought through Samuel fell to the ground. It all comes true. And so Eli's demise is fulfilled as it was for his sons. There was no repenting. There was no consulting. There was no changing. They wanted God's blessings, but not his rules. It's really interesting that the news that kills Eli... It's not the news that they lost the battle. It's not the news that he lost his sons. I'm sure he was saddened by it. But then when they ended the report with, and by the way, the ark was captured. (gasps) What? And then he falls backwards and he dies. Eli's a, a mercurial figure, you know, like you can't quite nail him down. He's not godly, but there's enough there for him to realize the real bad news is not even his own son's. The real bad news is the capture of the ark. What does that mean for Israel? He knows what that means. God is not here. You're just random people on a random part of the map at this point. God's presence isn't here. You don't follow God. That's what kills them. They should have been repenting. They should have been consulting. They should have been changing. They didn't. They wanted God's blessing. They didn't want God's rules. That's what this middle group looks like. They presume God is with them because they check the right boxes, but they don't really want to do what God wants. They want to do what they want. They want to shape Christianity into what they want and carry the ark around them with the, with the places where they want to go, but they don't want to conform their lives to the holy presence of God. That's what's happening here. The tragedy of this story is not that Israel lost a fight badly. They did. It's that they lost God's glory and his presence, his favor, That's the shocking, heart-grieving truth of this passage, and we see it underscored even further in the closing scene. In these final verses, 19 to 22, the report of the defeat and the uh, slaughter of not just the Israelites, but Hophni and Phinehas makes its way back to Phinehas' wife, which prompts her giving birth to a son and in that birth she names him something really interesting and she dies we see that in 19 to 22 now his daughter-in-law eli's daughter-in-law the wife of phineas was pregnant about to give birth and when she heard the news that the ark of god was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead what came first there the ark. Oh, by the way, yeah, your your family is dead. But what comes first, the ark? That's what's that's what's key here. When she heard that news, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. So the news sent her right into labor. And then in verse 20, and about and about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, "Do not be afraid for you have borne a son. She's dying but she's getting the final news. Hey, it's a boy. But she did not answer or pay attention. Could you imagine that? You're giving birth, especially in this society, and this time you need a son to carry on the name, right? To carry on the name. And She doesn't care. It's a son. What name is he going to carry on? It doesn't matter. If God's not here, in fact, she names him that. Check out what she names the kid. She named verse 21. She didn't pay attention to what they were telling her. And then in verse 21, and she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Look how many times it says it. The glory has departed from Israel. Why does she name him that? Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Those are her last words. Not please take care of him. Please make sure he has a legacy. Please don't tell him his dad was this idiot. As lost as Israel is at this time, and we don't want to blame her for Phineas. You know, maybe Phineas is his own dude. You know, he's doing his stuff, but... She's probably not particularly godly. Who knows? Who knows? But she knows enough to know that the real tragedy here is not that I'm dying. It's not that my son's not going to have other siblings or, or whatever. It's that God's glory has departed. Name him Ichabod. Ichabod means where is glory or nothing of glory. So you see how all these scenes are driving home this idea. When we presume that God is with, with us by virtue of a sacred representation, like the ark, we lose God's saving presence. God doesn't step in as Savior. He doesn't go in to battle for people who are just presuming that he's going to do it. And they're presuming he's going to do it because they have some holy piece of furniture. Right? That, 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 the, text is shou- the story is shouting that truth out at us. When we confuse sacred things with our saving Lord, we lose salvation altogether. That doesn't mean sacred things aren't important. They were commanded to build that ark. The ark was God's idea. It wasn't their idea. They were supposed to build that ark and bringing it into battle... Shouldn't have been necessary, but it's not something that I don't think is specifically outlawed in the text. It's that they presume that if we just bring the furniture out here, God still has to let us get away with what we want to do. And he has to do what he's supposed to do. His job is to make sure we're secure. And his job is supposed to be to carve the, the path for us and save us when we're in trouble. And then we get to enjoy that security and do what we want like fleece the people, steal from the people, sleep around with the people's women. Laziness, idleness. As long as we don't worship their gods and we keep the temple in place and we've got the doctrines right, God is supposed to go before us and it doesn't work that way. The problem is not seeing sacred things as important, sacred representations as important. They are important when they're commanded of God. The danger is in presuming that God is with us even in the face of unrepentant sin. So how does this connect? You're like, I mean, we don't have an ark today. What is the big deal? I know. I know. But do we still have sacred things that represent the presence of God? We just did one of them. We just did, It's sitting right there. The Lord's Supper, this is a practice that's central to the church service. We're supposed to do it. The physical elements are representations of of God's presence. Now, I know Christians have been arguing about this for 2,000 years. How present is God in communion? Now, you get Catholics who are like, Jesus is physically present. You think you put bread in your mouth, but it's not. And then Lutherans take a step back. They're like, well, I mean, it is bread, but it's also Jesus' body. It is drink from the vine, but it's also blood. It just doesn't taste like it because it's both. And then other reformers, like Calvin, took another step back, and they're like, well, no, I mean, it's bread, and it's, you know, wine at that point. But he's truly present. Not so much in the elements, but in the taking, in the service among the people. Jesus is present in the taking of communion in a way that he's not present in other times. Now, you might go, well, I got God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But he's not everywhere with the same favor, the same uh, fullness of his presence. Is, is God present in hell? Yes. Is that the same presence as as Jesus in the new earth? No. You remember when Jesus promises disciples in Matthew 18 where two or three are gathered, there I am with them? Well, what if it's just one, Do Are you not there? I thought you are omnipresent. Well, he's talking about being with them in a way where they're able to do church discipline. Because if any of you who have ever hung around any elders or pastors for very long, some of what Bill was talking about in that wonderful testimony at the anniversary Some of the hardest stuff of being an elder is church discipline. That's really, really hard. Unless you're a jerk and you wake up in the morning excited to discipline somebody. You probably shouldn't be an elder. That's the irony, right? To be an elder, you've got to be a guy that the last thing you want to do is do the thing that you're supposed to do when you have to do it. And so Jesus appends a promise to that church discipline passage. I know it's hard, but when you gather together and you're in unity about this thing, it's not just one elder flying off at the handle. I hate this guy. Let's kick him out of church. But you're together on it, then my presence is with you. It's a promise. And that's tied to communion, isn't it? Because when somebody's excommunicated, part of what they're excommunicated from is not just a, a public gathering. It's, it's the meal, it's the table. People are often offended at what Aaron did this morning. How dare somebody stand up and say, this table is for these people and not for these people. Now we welcome you. We invite you. You can become a member of the other group. Stop spurning Christ. Embrace him. Stop rejecting God's truth. Embrace his truth. Stop digging your heels in on your sin. Repent over your sin. And place your faith in Jesus Christ. So you're welcome to the table, but you're welcome to the table by changing groups. And then come. So when we take communion, we don't have to be Catholic. We don't even have to be where Calvin is. Because I think most of your Baptists who would say, we call it a memorial. The symbols, the bread and the cup, remind us of God's presence. But I haven't met many Baptists who go, well, God's not present when we take communion. He's not, there's nothing special about communion. No, it is special. It is special because of what it represents. But can a church have crackers and drink and songs and a gathering and there's no Jesus in it? Yeah. And the members of that church will stand in which line at the end? This one, this one, or this one? What? We had a building. We had crackers. We had drink. We had theology. We had pastors, small groups, deacons. And Jesus said, yeah, but the point is, did you know me, though? Did you know me? Israel doesn't know God right now. They're very strange to God right now. And another reason why I think communion, uh, just one example, is, is parallel to the ark in the Old Testament even though the ark wasn't a covenant sign, it was central to their worship. When they presumed upon the ark, they died. I will see in the next chapter when non covenant people look into the ark, they die. All right? It's straight. The whole Raiders of the Lost Ark face melting scene is right from maybe not quite as graphic. Well, we're going to see that. The Philistines like, oh, this magic box. And they take a look at it, they die. But interestingly, before we get to that, the author wants us to see when God's own people don't understand what the ark represents and they just see the ark itself as the thing, they die. And don't you remember in the very passage that Aaron read to us this morning, Paul tells the congregation in Corinth, You guys are not taking communion appropriately. And this is why some of you have gotten sick and why some of you have fallen asleep. And he doesn't mean take a nap. That's weighty, right? I mean, that's... What does that mean? Is it possible that if I presume upon God's presence... Things can happen that will alert me to the fact that God's not pleased. Now, Paul says some. He didn't say anyone who takes communion wrongly is going to get sick and die. He didn't say that. But I think it would be foolish of us to just say, well, that's the Old Testament. That's how God operated in the Old Testament. If you presume upon God now, he's just real cuddly about it. I don't don't know. In the New Testament, you still see stuff like that. They're presuming that it's just the taking of the bread and taking of the drink. You can elbow people out of your way. You don't have to ask forgiveness of that person. You don't have to give forgiveness to that person. You can hate the pastor. It doesn't matter. As long as you show up, take the elements, sing the songs, have the right theology, you're in. And the Bible shouts from front to back that that's not how it works. That's not the only way to apply it, but it's very fitting, I think. There's other things you can think of. I think baptism fits here too. You can be dunked in the water and presume that that gets you in, but the water doesn't get you in. Come on. And we can do that with the gathering. As long as we're faithful and we show up and we're here and we're gathered and we're do what we're supposed to do, you know, we're good. And maybe, but not necessarily. That's why it's tricky. Good Christians take Communion. Good Christians follow through with baptism. Not in that order. T- t- should be the other order. Good Christians gather. Good Christians sing. Good Christians understand theology. Good Christians read their Bibles. Good Christians have quiet times. They pray. Good Christians show up to prayer meetings. That's what good Christians do. But those thing- things don't make them a good Christian. Those things are things that good Christians do. They understand how to appreciate the Bible, not as a holy re- relic, Not as something on the shelf, but as a way for me to listen to what God says, to sit at his feet and say, teach me, show me, what am I supposed to do? And I don't read it because I signed up for a Read the Bible in a Year program. I read it because this is God's word. And if I worship him, I follow him, I want to know what he says, then I've got to read it, don't I? So you have a category of a person who's just a very disciplined reader, is still lost. Another person who's also a very disciplined reader, but they're not lost. What is the difference? The difference is a relationship with Jesus Christ and that you're reading the Bible because of the author, not because of the Bible. The sacred thing is not the thing. The sacred thing is not the saving thing. It represents the saving one, but it's not God. The Bible is not God. Communion is not God. A gathering isn't God. It's what godly people do to appreciate God. Finally, real quickly, to turn the guns on myself, I suppose, uh, another area of application is the failure of leaders at the top that can affect the group as a whole. The text goes after not Phineas' wife, not the people as a whole. I mean, they're shouting but it goes after Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, who should have known better. They were the priests. They should have known better. And they led the group as a whole into this, into this mess. That, that doesn't make the people wholly innocent. I think of when, when big churches go bad, they're usually enabled by a large constituency who would rather continue the machinery of the work. They'd rather continue the benefits of the church to their, their lives then call the rogue pastor to account. There is a kind of guilt that falls on the congregation, shouting, shaking the ground with the enormity of their numbers. No God in it at all. And they should see it. But who gets the, the greatest weight of guilt in the end? Who gets all the attention, most of the attention, I should say, in the text? It's the ones who should have been standing there, guys. Hey, guys, we're, we're off course. We're off course here. It's those guys. And so for us, uh, you, as I spoke about at the anniversary, you, you care for me and for the staff and for the elders and the deacons in many ways. But one of them is to keep an eye on us. To hold us accountable so that we will be bold enough to say what we're supposed to say. And in order for us to do that, we need you to be bold enough to say something if there's something wrong. That doesn't mean have a critical spirit. A critical spirit is sinful, but so is silence in the face of real problems. If I turn into an Eli up here, don't wait for me to fall backwards on my own neck. Pull me aside and save me. Because I'm not God's presence either. So like the Israelites in this passage, we can wonder why something's not working out. Is God really with us? Maybe God's not allowing something in your life. He's not approving something you thought he'd approve. We might feel a temptation to reach for what seems like this is God's presence. If I just show up to church more, read the Bible more. Those things can help you, but those things aren't what save you. Cling to Christ and let those other things fall into place as they're supposed to. Going to church will strengthen your marriage, but if you go to church in order to strengthen your marriage, then you worship your marriage, not God. Does that make sense? But going to church will strengthen your marriage if you pursue God, and that's why you're going to church, that will strengthen your marriage. Taking communion will help you. Taking communion is a glorious time, but we take it because we cling to Christ for forgiveness. We don't take it so that we can clean the plate, cleanse the plate And then Monday we can go do whatever we want that displeases God. We know that. So if we understand that sacred things are not saving things, that doesn't mean we disregard sacred things like gathering, communion, baptism, reading God's, God's word. We do those things, but we do those things not because they're the saving things. We do those things because they give us access to, help us learn from, and cling to, the only one who saves, which is Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father is for you. That is Christ going before you in battle. And you get to follow in that train if you cling to him by faith, which looks like repentance and a changed life. Let's pray.